The enemy of my enemy is my friend. This is a phrase that originates in the 4th century BC from a treatise written in Sanskrit called the Arthashastra. The original phrasing of this proverb is a little less snappy, though it reflects the concerns of the literate population of those days. That original phrasing goes like this, quote, The king who is situated anywhere immediately on the circumference of the conqueror's territory is termed the enemy. The king who is likewise situated close to the enemy but separated from the conqueror only by the enemy is termed the friend of the conqueror. End quote. The man who wrote the Arthashastra, a man named Chanakya, and who went by the name Katilya while authoring this particular work, has also been called the Indian Machiavelli because he was a philosopher and an economist and a royal advisor. He's also considered to be a pioneer in the field of political science, and his work is fairly widely considered to be a precursor to classical economics, which is to say he wasn't being glib when making this statement about friends and enemies. It was an idea that was part of a larger body of theory that was well-respected back then and which is still well-respected today. The first instance of this concept arriving in English, in the English language, is trickier to pin down, though it seems to have evolved from a Latin phrase that was common in the 18th century, amicus meus inipicus inipici me, which translates to my friend, the enemy of my enemy. This phrase showed up in several Romance language books, Italian and French, around that time period, and it's guessed to have arrived in English as the result of a translation of a French book that was popular at the time. That French book was a popular tome called Political Creed, and a version of this adage, every enemy's enemy is a friend, had already been translated into English in 1825, but the version that was in this book, Political Creed, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, seems to have become wildly popular in 1884, and that became the dominant version of this bit of wisdom. This phrase, however, didn't become common, nor was it even mentioned, as far as we know, in print in the United States until 1954, when it was published in the New York Times as a supposed ancient Arab saying, rather than an Indian one. By that time, though, it was considered to be kind of a truism, as we'd seen many unlikely political friendships throughout the two world wars and during the initial lead-up to the Cold War. This phrase then provided cover for the many unholy alliances between groups that would otherwise be at each other's throats that we saw around that time period. The term unholy alliance, by the way, refers to an alliance that is seen by both sides to be somewhat unnatural in some way. These are people or groups or nations that have no love for each other, and in many cases that are completely antagonistic toward each other. 
and yet they work together, typically against a common foe, under the assumption that when it's all over, they will be back to their familiar oppositional roles. During his campaign, former U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt called the partnership between corrupt businessmen and corrupt politicians an unholy alliance. The Nazis and the Soviets teaming up to partition Poland was likewise considered an unholy alliance by many, a necessary evil toward a worthwhile goal. And that is what I want to talk about today. Unholy alliances, necessary evils, unacknowledged middle grounds, and uncomfortable political combinations of the sort we've seen a whole lot of recently, and which I believe we will see a whole lot more of in the very near future. Let's Know Things is brought to you by its wonderful listeners. If you're enjoying the show, stop by letsnotethings.com and click on the Contribute page, and you will find an array of different ways that you can help support the show. You can contribute directly, monetarily, through the links on that page. You can leave a review up on iTunes. You can share the show with a friend. Each and every supportive action is very much appreciated. Thank you so much to everyone who has already done so in some way, shape, or form. And thank you in advance if you are considering doing so. I appreciate your contribution. Another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors. The first sponsor today is Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you will receive a free month trial of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice, which is yours to keep whether or not you stick with them past that free month. Stay tuned till the end of the episode, and I will recommend a book that you might consider spending that free credit on. And the other sponsor today is HostGator, the hosting company that I've used for many years. If you go to hostgator.com LKT, you will receive a discount that they provide to listeners of Let's Know Things, hostgator.com LKT. All right, let's get back to the show. The article that I want to start from today comes from Time Magazine, or time.com, if you want to visit the online version of it. And that article is entitled, A Billionaire Resistance Targets President Trump from the Right. The billionaires in question here are primarily the people who have in the past been behind groups like Americans for Prosperity, which is a nonprofit group that has been used to fund and often create from whole cloth fake grassroots movements, so-called astroturf movements. They have done this to great effect over the past decade or so. A great deal of what became the Tea Party movement that fought Obama at every step of the way during his presidency was funded by this group and created by this group in some cases. And their strategies came directly from higher-ups running these think tanks and other nonprofits that are tied to these larger groups, all funded by this one small cadre of billionaires. It's interesting to see these people aiming their cannons at Trump because, one, over the past decade, they've essentially taken over the GOP 
installing their own candidates in office and encouraging and strategizing the gerrymandering efforts that have allowed their candidates to rack up win after win in local level politics. And two, because they actually kind of laid the groundwork for Trump. Now President Trump basically stepped in and took over their infrastructure by being a more extreme version of what they were promoting and funding already. That is a super simplified version of what happened. And if you're looking for a more thorough background and explanation on who these guys are and what happened within their movement, read this Time article, which I will link to in the show notes, and then consider picking up a copy of the book Dark Money by Jane Mayer, which is all about the Koch brothers and the other people in this group. But for the purposes of this story, what's important to understand is that this group built an amazingly effective political powerhouse, which, as it won them and their people more power, also armored itself against future competition by redrawing voting maps and increasing the partisanship of regional voters. And that powerhouse, that voting block, that very well-defended intellectual real estate that they carved out for themselves, was taken from them by Trump. It has been argued by many different people that this takeover was only possible because this group of billionaires and the media that they helped empower encouraged their listeners and viewers to deny any truth that didn't match their existing ideology. There was a piece in the New York Times not long ago by Charlie Sykes, who is a former conservative radio show host, which was entitled, Why Nobody Cares the President is Lying. And in this piece, he said, quote, For years as a conservative radio talk show host, I played a role in that conditioning by hammering the mainstream media for its bias and double standards. But the price turned out to be far higher than I imagined. The cumulative effect of the attacks was to delegitimize those outlets and essentially destroy much of the right's immunity to false information. We thought we were creating a savvier, more skeptical audience. Instead, we opened the door for President Trump, who found an audience that could be easily misled. End quote. Now, that brand of journalism that aimed to delegitimize all other types of journalism wasn't exactly new when the Kochs and their group used it to such great effect in the development of the Tea Party and its accompanying infrastructure. But their resources and understanding of what that portion of the public was after and how they could be influenced and guided was a powerful combination. They carved out and gilded a door that led straight to power. And Trump and his people, seeing an opportunity, walked right through that door before anybody else could. The people were primed for his kind of spectacle and to disbelieve anything that called into question the story he was telling. He presented a very compelling narrative, and it was clearly a ripe moment for it. In that context, then, this Time article identifies a sort of enemy of my enemies situation in which the people who have been the biggest enemies of progressive politicians are, if not aligning 
with their traditional foes, at least for the moment, working toward similar goals, trying to dethrone Trump. They're not likely to change their stance on gun control laws or abortion rights anytime soon. But they do seem determined to slap down the pretenders who outmaneuvered them. And they seem willing to call out the more authoritarian, anti-democratic habits of the Trumpians as they do so. It's worth mentioning that antagonism toward Trump is not the only attribute that these more traditional political power players share. In fact, it could be argued that their shared concern about his rise may have as much to do with the foundational values that they have in common as it does with their desire to hold on to the power that was wrested from them during this last election. Consider that, in many ways, Trump's treatment by the traditional conservative establishment, especially early on, but today in some instances as well, very closely mirrored the treatment that Bernie Sanders received from the progressive establishment. Bernie, too, was an outsider in many ways, and he, too, stepped in at an opportune moment, perhaps not even realizing at the time how opportune that moment was, and took some power away from those more established political players. And the Clintons in that moment were, in some ways, like the Kochs and the other Tea Party-affiliated politicians. The key players involved have very different ideologies. There is a huge gap between the beliefs held by the Kochs and the Clintons, for instance. But an election that was meant to be the same age-old struggle between different types of elites proved itself to be anything but. That disruption unearthed another previously mostly unnoticed ideological gap, the one between the globalists and the populists. What both the Clintons and the Kochs share is a desire to see a more interconnected planet, which is to say they're in favor of globalization and opening up borders and pulling down trade barriers. This, in turn, allows already big companies to grow bigger, and the number of opportunities for the well-connected people to increase, and the investments made by those with money and prestige to bear even more fruit than usual. It's a pro-globalization, pro-capitalism as currently practiced stance that both Democrats and Republicans have long held even if they might have minor disagreements as to what the day-to-day of this system looks like and which of their allies should benefit more. The same overarching plan was never called into question in these elections. Not until this last election, that is. Now, the flip side of globalization, of what the Clintons and the Kochs of the world are proponents of, is what's sometimes been correctly and sometimes been incorrectly referred to as populism. And populism as a broad term means a movement for the people, for the priorities of the people by the people. It's about the common person's concern and ensuring that those common people are taken care of and hopefully enjoy better lives. Populism is also often associated with things like anti-elitism, which in modern parlance is usually code for anti-academia, anti-science, anti-professionalism, 
It's the little guy, usually defined as those who lack higher education or economic safety nets, versus those who have those things and a whole lot more. Populism needn't be associated with any particular political party. It needn't be a movement of the right or the left or the centrists. But it does generally leave out or devalue a lot of what many people crying for populism today actually do respect and value if they take a second to think about it. It's not just about balancing the books and decreasing the wealth gap. It's about toppling many of the structures of power, even, it's worth mentioning, those structures of power that may, in fact, work and that we may have come to take for granted and would not miss until they're gone. Populism also generally involves a refocusing of attention toward the local rather than the national or the international. And that means local shops, local politicians, local relationships. Instead of focusing our resources on what happens to the whole country or what happens in other countries, we focus on the here and the now, on our neighbors down the street. And this is a laudable idea in many regards, but it can also leave a lot to be desired when you look at the big picture. Yes, ideally we are working to improve our own backyards, but ignoring the rest of the world while focusing on the local is a bit like stepping back from the global conversation and saying, okay, this is not my problem, I don't have to deal with this. Even though what happens in these other countries does impact what happens in our own backyard. If we choose to opt out from these conversations, what we're really doing is not taking responsibility. And we're kind of sticking our fingers in our ears and closing our eyes and hoping all the bad stuff goes away and passes us by, which to me is a somewhat questionable policy. And this is something that might have been a somewhat feasible ideology hundreds of years ago, let's say pre-Age of Discovery. But that's not how the world works today. You can't put the globalization genie back in the bottle. Our economy does not grow stronger when we ignore how the modern economy works, which is in an interconnected fashion. I mean, think about this. How many countries do you think are involved in the production of an iPhone? This to me is a pretty good unit of measurement to determine how integral globalization is to our society because our iPhones or our other smartphones are things that we consider to be fairly vital in terms of how we operate day to day. These have become almost utilities in a way. And yet, although the numbers are different depending on what you include in the math, and although Apple is actually a fairly unique company in the sense that they do a lot of their software development and design work inside the U.S., the data from 2014 shows that the iPhone, the iPhone that was being sold at the time, required the efforts of companies within 31 different countries as part of its supply chain. And that's post-material refinement, meaning that those 31 countries were involved in the production and construction of the device, but that's after all the minerals were mined, all the minerals and other resources were refined, and after they were delivered, and it also doesn't include all the shipping and marketing and things of that nature that are involved in this type of product. 
such a small, relatively simple device, and from a company that does a lot of work locally in the United States, in-house, and yet it still requires the effort of companies in 31 countries to make it a reality. Looking into that data about the iPhone reminded me of another argument that I'd heard for globalization several years back. Nobel Prize-winning economist Milton Friedman talked about globalization on a program that he recorded in the 80s for a PBS series that I will link to in the show notes. And in one segment of this series, he holds up a pencil and says that there's not a single person on the planet who is capable of making a pencil all by themselves. He talks about the wood that is used to make it, and the saws that are used to cut down the trees for that wood, and the steel that is refined from iron ore that is required to make those saws. He talks about the paint, the compressed graphite, the rubber for the eraser, and all these components came from different places around the world, and they all required deep supply chains of their own, each of these pieces to make and refine and eventually combine into that pencil. He then said, quote, Literally thousands of people cooperated to make this pencil. People who don't speak the same language, who practice different religions, who might hate one another if they ever met. When you go down to the store and buy this pencil, you are, in effect, trading a few minutes of your time for a few seconds of the time of all those thousands of people. End quote. What Friedman is talking about here is one of the implied benefits of the free market system and how the world is ostensibly a better place when that system is allowed to propagate and to reach around the globe and include as many people as possible. Though they may have slightly different ideas about how it should be maintained and spread, the free market system is a big part of what brings the Kochs and the Clintons together. Both groups are boosterish about markets bringing people together and being largely beneficial for the world. And although I don't think either family or their constituent political players are working purely for the benefit of the world, there are no doubt plenty of personal benefits for all of them as a consequence of that global market growth. This aspect of globalization is generally considered to be a noble enough goal that their disagreements can take a back seat as they fight against opponents who are less enthused about the idea or even outright opposed to it. There are many very well-publicized issues that clearly illustrate the differences between political parties and their accompanying politicians. And these issues like immigration and women's rights, and how higher education should function are very, very important issues. But there are other issues, usually much more foundational issues, that percolate just below the surface, and we often ignore them, not because we don't care about things like the global banking system and proxy wars, but because they're not made the focus of discussion. And a big part of why they are not is that the politicians we're choosing from all tend to adhere to the same or similar broad-stroke ideologies when it comes to these topics. It's like we've been told for our entire lives that deciding between Pepsi and Coke is the most vital decision we'll ever have to make, 
And while some of the more woke among us have at times rebelliously cast their vote for maybe Dr. Pepper or Mountain Dew, we've never really considered that we might want to stop drinking soda altogether. I used to do branding work for companies both big and small, so it sometimes confuses people when I tell them that they should not be loyal to brands that they love. Brand loyalty of this kind, I tell them, very often leads to weaker brands. If you make clear that you will buy any phone a particular brand puts on the market just because it's from them and because it has their logo on it, not because it's necessarily the best option for your particular needs, you are training that company to rely on your presence and your support and to take it for granted regardless of the quality of their work. Over time, this type of brand tends to become very fragile, less innovative, and they tend to make a lower quality product as a result. They no longer need to win anybody over, so they don't bother. And instead of investing in the continued quality of their product, they invest in other things. And these are things that usually result in a loss of overall quality for what they're selling. The same is true, I think, of political parties. The more partisan we become, the more loyal we are to a particular party, supporting and defending their action without thinking about what those actions and what those stances actually represent and whether or not we actually agree with them, the weaker these parties become over time. They needn't do any real thinking or stand for anything in particular because they've already got us. They know they've got us because it's them or that other brand of soda. And what are we going to do? Support those horrible villains over there? The ones who disagree with us about those two or three things we've chosen to fixate on? And the result of this is that we will bend over backwards to reshape our personal ideologies so that they align with those espoused by the party we are loyal to, rather than forcing those parties to reflect ours the way that it should be. The dog is holding the leash and taking us for a walk. Amplifying this issue is the fact that although not everyone is reading purely partisan news, sticking to only Fox and MSNBC or only to Breitbart and the Daily Kos, the most politically involved people, on average, are reading only partisan news. Higher rates of partisanship align with higher rates of political involvement. The loudest people on any political issue are those with the flattest, most two-dimensional views, and we are all worse off for that. And we're worse off because this causes our sense of grays, of the spectrum between black and white and good and evil, to disappear almost completely. When we do not hold ourselves responsible for understanding what we, as individuals, think, then we lose our sense of that middle ground. When we don't decide for ourselves where we draw the line and at which point we abandon ship, leaving a party or a brand behind because they no longer represent us, then we are doing ourselves a disservice and we are seeing the world in that highly contrasted and therefore highly reductive way. We are weaker when we wear the labels others provide for us rather than making our own and holding strong to beliefs that make sense to us as individuals first and foremost, but building convenient alliances with enemies of our enemies when we see fit, when it makes sense for something that we want to accomplish.
I tend to believe that we would all be better off if we were more politically omnivorous, taking in information from all sides and allowing ourselves to straddle the fence between Democrat and Republican and Libertarian and Green and every other party and non-party entity. If we allow ourselves to be multifaceted, to stand apart, our parties would feel more of a need to win us over. And none of us would ever be completely 100% happy with what they do, of course, but I think we'd be in a better position to angle for platforms that actually make sense for what we actually believe, for our actual ideologies, rather than settling for those that are opposite what the other party thinks and carefully built to be not offensive to as large a block of people as possible. Partisan loyalty to any party is a conscious decision to give up our political free will in favor of the platform developed by the group to which we have sworn fealty. And this is easier because we needn't make any moral decisions for ourselves. We only have to follow the moral directives set by those higher up the totem pole. But it's also less fulfilling, I think, because it keeps us reliant on others to know what to believe. And it forces us to act against what we may actually feel to be right and correct. Now, accepting that this might be true opens up some new doors in terms of political strategy. It means that we can form alliances with those we disagree with in almost every respect except one that we share in common with them, and which together we might be able to make manifest. We have seen in recent years, and will continue to see in the near future, no doubt, many unholy alliances between highly unlikely characters. Some of these alliances will relate to things like globalization. Others will be more granular and specific. Bernie Sanders supporters and Donald Trump supporters did have a few ideas in common, and the same could be said of establishment Democrats and establishment Republicans. Such alliances are called unholy, but that doesn't mean that they're not worth exploring. They're unholy because they go against established dogma, and that is something that will by default, offend a great number of people. But there was a period during the latter half of and just after World War II in which Joseph Stalin, one of the greatest mass murderers and war criminals in history, was referred to as Uncle Joe by the American government and media in an attempt to bolster U.S. support for an alliance with the Soviets. This was an alliance that was a difficult sell, to be certain, but it's also incredibly unlikely that either side could have defeated Hitler's Third Reich, alone. Sometimes unholy alliances are not just good options, but existential requirements for a particular point of view. Now, I'll warn you ahead of time, this kind of thinking can lead to some very uncomfortable conclusions, because they're generally not simple conclusions, and they don't always align with what any of the major parties present as the correct opinions or answers or even those that are options that we are allowed to hold and choose between. Let me give a personal example to illustrate what I mean by that. As I record this, there is a news item that is going around about Elon Musk, who is the founder and CEO of SpaceX and Tesla. And the news about him is in regard to the position that he has accepted on a President Trump advisory panel. Now, progressives are demanding that he step down 
and they've already convinced the CEO of Uber to step down from the same advisory panel with a boycott that resulted in a few hundred thousand people deleting the Uber app from their phone. Now Musk, for his part, argues that it's important that the president has non-extremists advising him, that Trump needs someone who believes in things like global warming to provide information and perspective, because his other advisors clearly are not. The dominant progressive argument is that by being on this panel in the first place, Musk is lending his credibility to Trump, which in turn normalizes him and all of his actions. I personally believe that they are both right. I think that we need people throwing stones from the inside, and that by refusing to try to inform those who we believe are misinformed, we do an injustice to our causes. At the same time, I think that by aligning ourselves publicly with someone or something we don't agree with, we do tacitly support things and people that we don't actually support. We lend them additional credibility. And so my personal conclusion is that Musk should stay on the panel and provide that information where he can, but he should also take flack for it. He should be publicly shamed even, not because he deserves it necessarily, but because if he joins and gets away with it untarnished, it may seem to other leaders, to other CEOs, that this is a game that's worth playing for other reasons and for other benefits. And they may do things that adds credibility to a president they disagree with simply because they believe it will be good for their company on the stock exchange. In short, I think Musk should probably suffer for the decision, though his actions are, I think, personally correct, and potentially they're even very noble actions. We need people who are willing to make that kind of sacrifice to work from the inside, but we also need it to be seen publicly as an incorrect, ignoble act to join up with somebody with whom we disagree. This is an opinion that, no doubt, many people will not share, and it's also an opinion that you're unlikely to find in newspapers, in part because it's a bit more complex than the black and white that we are typically pitched, the for or against, and in part because it doesn't fit neatly into a partisan box. So those who are generally interviewed for the purposes of giving the black and white positions of either side will not voice anything that colors outside those establishment lines. They are incentivized by the way that the news media and politics work to keep things very simple and very understandable and very extreme as a result. Now imagine for a moment that the majority of your political opinions were like that opinion that I just presented. Not extreme exactly, and not politically polarized, but requiring a decent amount of explanation in order to be fully conveyed. And quite likely, if you only give part of the explanation, something that is likely to be misinterpreted by anybody who is strongly on one side or the other. It's a very tricky plot to stake out, because in almost every case, people with whom you agree on other things will see you as the opposition because your beliefs or justifications do not perfectly align with theirs or the ones that they have been given on that particular topic. Even if you might want the same results, taking a different path to get there or a more convoluted path to get there is very often demonized. And if you don't toe the party line, 
whichever party we might be talking about here, you are more likely to be reflexively relegated to the against us category rather than being more correctly and accurately labeled, I think, as someone who is with us in this particular instance, but not necessarily on everything. I'm not even sure there is such a category for most people in most cases, actually. If we're being truthful, there are seldom concise answers to any question when you are a political omnivore. Our beliefs will almost never cleanly fit under the cookie cutters of partisanship, and being honest about this can complicate the discussion, but it can also, I think, help expand the scope of the conversation and force us to take more perspectives and more concerns into consideration. We all have a lot of choices to make in the coming years, and in this regard in particular, in how we take in information, in how we shape arguments, and in how we perceive other people's arguments. It may be that a lot of the conversations we end up having are flattened, as they typically are, due to the lenses of partisanship, but I am hopeful, and I think that there's a lot of reason for this hope, that because of what's happening now, that we have a greater capacity than ever to see the details beyond just the basic platonic shape of each of these arguments. And as a result, if we want to, we do in fact have the capability to build something that is more us-shaped, to present a worldview that goes beyond what's merely black and white. Let's Know Things is a listener-supported show, which means if you are enjoying it, do consider stopping by letsknowthings.com. If you click on the Contribute page, you will find an array of different options, different things that you can do. You can contribute via Venmo or PayPal. You can share the show with a friend who you think might enjoy it. You can leave a review up on iTunes. That is an effort that helps quite a bit, even though it takes a fraction of a minute to complete. A huge thanks to everyone who's contributed in some way already, helping to support the show. I very much appreciate that. And thanks in advance if you're considering doing so in the future. And another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors when you take advantage of these sponsorship opportunities, when you go check them out and sign up or become their customers. That actually helps the show monetarily as well. So if you are looking for these particular types of services, it is a great way to serve the double purpose of achieving those services while also helping support Let's Know Things. The first sponsor is Audible. I am a huge fan of audiobooks, and if you enjoy podcasts, chances are you will be as well. If you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, you can give the audiobook thing a shot for a month. You will receive a free month trial of Audible, and you will also receive an audiobook of your choice for free. And that audiobook is yours to keep whether or not you stick with them past that free month. The entire adventure could cost you absolutely nothing, and you still walk away with an audiobook of your choice, which is pretty cool. That shows confidence in their product, I think. And if you are lacking a book, if you don't have a book in mind already to spend that Audible credit on, might I suggest... Alas, Babylon by Pat Frank. This book was written in 1959, and it's a wonderful story for multiple reasons. It's well-written, and it's good in that it reflects 
a whole lot of the sentiments and attitudes and concerns of the early years of the Cold War. And it's also interesting in that it's one of the first pieces of post-apocalyptic speculative fiction that was written post-World War II and therefore post-atomic bomb. And so it represents a whole lot of the concerns and the predictions about what would happen if the United States ever went to war with the Soviet Union. And it does so in a very interesting way from the perspective of a small town in Florida, basically, post-nuclear strike. So if you're looking for something interesting to read, Alas Babylon by Pat Frank is an excellent option. You can spend that Audible credit on it and get it for free if you go to audibletrial.com LKT. But it's also worth picking up if you just want to grab it on your Kobo or your Kindle, stop by your library, go to your local indie bookstore, or whatever other option you have for acquiring good books to read. And the other sponsor today is HostGator. HostGator is the hosting company that I use to host my blog and to host the Let's Note Things website. It's an excellent, simple option to use. There are some really high-end, complex tools baked in as well, but even if you're relatively new to the web thing... They have options that are kind of one-click setups so that you can set up your blog or your portfolio or whatnot with very minimal knowledge and very minimal effort required. If you go to hostgator.com LKT, you will receive a discount that they give to listeners of Let's Know Things that is taken off of their already excellent prices. Highly recommend this company. They've been a pleasure to work with for many years, and I have worked with many different hosting companies. I cannot honestly say that about most of them. And again, by checking out these sponsors, it's also a great way to help support the show, and I appreciate it. If you want to see the show notes for this episode and for every episode, stop by letsnotethings.com. And while there, consider signing up for the Let's Note Things weekly newsletter, which is really just a collection of links to interesting things that I send out every Monday. That is free and fun. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I have written personally at colin.io. You can find me pretty much everywhere on the internet, on all the social media, at Colin is my name. And you can find my blog, Exile Lifestyle, at exilelifestyle.com. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.